0: 15 years have passed since Jennifer Servo's murder. A lot can change in 15 years. People grow up, they have kids of their own. Their perspectives change. They end relationships, and friendships, and they start new relationships and new friendships. Sometimes, people just drift apart. Sometimes people who were scared are no longer around the people they were scared of. And sometimes people just don't realize how important the information they have really is. I can't promise you that we'll solve Jennifer's case, but I can promise you that together we're going to give this investigation our best efforts. And I think you'll be glad you came along with me on my search for a real life murderer. Jennifer's case needs to be back on people's minds and in people's everyday conversations. That's why we're doing this. Because somewhere out there, there's a murderer who's had 15 years of freedom that they don't deserve. And because maybe, just maybe, we'll succeed. Welcome back to Justice Delayed, the unsolved homicide of Jennifer Olson's servo. I'm Sharon Newman-Edwards, your host. Today we're going to go over what we know about the timeline. Along the way, we'll talk about the two main suspects police had back in 2002, and as far as we know, these are still the main suspects today. As promised, these are the suspects that Jennifer knew. This is episode four, The Montana Boyfriend and the Abilene Colleague. Since there were two men vying for Jennifer's attention in the last two months of her life, to keep them straight, as you just heard, we're going to call them The Montana Boyfriend, and the Abilene colleague. Here's a little bit of background about each one to get us started. Jennifer had met and began dating the Montana boyfriend during those summer months in 2002, just before she received the job offer in Abilene, Texas. We don't know exactly when she met him, but since she met him at her Army Reserves training that summer, it could only have been in late May, sometime in June, or in very early July. Katie Vine, in her 2003 article for Cosmopolitan Magazine, called Why Can't They Find Her Killer, puts that meeting in mid-June 2002, and we're going to go with that estimate for now. If you have more accurate information about this part of the timeline, please be sure to let me know. Shortly after meeting Jennifer, the Montana boyfriend left his job and the life he had built in Montana and moved nearly 1,600 miles away to be with Jennifer. Then, about three weeks after moving to Abilene, Jennifer became aware of some information about the Montana boyfriend that caused her to break things off permanently and ask him to move out of her apartment. What was that information? We'll get to that in a couple of minutes, I promise. The second man vying for Jennifer's attention late that summer was a co-worker at her new job. Jennifer first met the Abilene colleague when she started working at the TV station around mid-July 2002. Jennifer and the Abilene colleague did things together, both in a group with other colleagues at the station and sometimes just the two of them. In the September 11, 2007 article, She Could Have Gone Anywhere She Wanted To by Jeff Marks, the Abilene colleague says that he and Jennifer were briefly intimate, but that Jennifer decided she just wanted to be good friends, and he says he was all right with that. However, according to the same article, One of Jennifer's friends back in Montana said that Jennifer felt like the Abilene colleague was, quote, very into her and she didn't want to hurt him, unquote. The Abilene colleague was the last known person to see Jennifer alive. There's one other man that I think we should discuss at this point, only because he helps us set the timeline in those early morning hours of Monday, September 16, 2002, the day that Jennifer was murdered. We're going to call him the college boyfriend. Jennifer had had a long-term relationship with him in college, but they had broken up prior to that summer. Clearly, they remained in contact because he's the man that Jennifer was talking to on the phone just before she was murdered, but after returning safely to her apartment from the Abilene Colleague's apartment. The college boyfriend was the last known person to speak to Jennifer. However, he's not a suspect. He was ruled out early on by police because he was in Montana at the time of Jennifer's murder. He's important to the investigation, though, because he helps us lock in the timeline of the last few hours of Jennifer's life. Police placed Jennifer's murder in the early morning hours of Monday, September 16th, shortly after that phone call with the college boyfriend ended. So let's get started with the timeline. Remember to let me know if you have any additional information or corrections and keep track of any questions you have so you can ask them on the Facebook page. Mid-June 2002. This is the closest we can come right now to when Jennifer met the Montana boyfriend. They met in Helena, Montana, during Jennifer's army reserve training that summer after she graduated from college. We don't know exactly when Jennifer received the Abilene job offer, but within a few weeks, so probably in late June or early July, the Montana boyfriend was already planning to move to Abilene with Jennifer. Her family and friends were skeptical at best. Concerned is probably more accurate. Remember, I mentioned in a previous episode that Jennifer's family didn't like the Montana boyfriend when they met him. Tuesday, July 16th. In Jennifer's mom's interview last week, she confirmed that she and Jennifer left Montana with the U-Haul carrying Jennifer's things on Tuesday morning, July 16th, to drive to Abilene. It's about a 23-plus hour drive, give or take, The first night, they got a hotel in northern Wyoming and then drove all day on Wednesday, July 17th, and finally arrived in Abilene in the early morning hours of Thursday, July 18th. On Thursday, July 18th, after getting some sleep, Jennifer and her mom looked for and found an apartment for Jennifer and then did some shopping to get some things for Jennifer's new apartment. It sounds like the Montana boyfriend arrived in Abilene after Jennifer and her mom, but before her mom flew back to Montana. So that would mean he arrived either in the afternoon of Thursday, July 18th, sometime on Friday, July 19th, or in the early part of the day on Saturday, July 20th. He brought with him only the belongings that would fit in a rented vehicle and Jennifer's cat, Mr. Binks. The Montana boyfriend had sold his car before leaving Montana, so between them, Jennifer was the only one with a vehicle. And this was long before the days of Uber or Lyft though there were probably taxis and or bus service in Abilene at the time. On Saturday, July 20th, Jennifer and the Montana boyfriend took Jennifer's mom to the airport, and she flew home. Two days later, on Monday, July 22nd, Jennifer started work at KRBC 9 TV station in Abilene. During those first few weeks in Abilene, Jennifer was making friends at the TV station and fitting in with a group of young news professionals her age. At the same time, Jennifer was telling friends that the Montana boyfriend was smothering her and that he would get jealous when she went out with her new friends. Jennifer didn't even introduce the Montana boyfriend to any of her new friends at the station, not one. In fact, according to author Carlton Stowers in his book, Girl in the Grave and Other True Crime Stories, a female friend and coworker of Jennifer's said later that Jennifer didn't talk about the Montana boyfriend very much and that even when they were still living together, Jennifer had seemed to make an effort to keep her new friends from meeting him. Meanwhile, the Montana boyfriend knew no one in Abilene, and to some, he didn't really seem to be looking very hard for a job. He also didn't have his own car, remember, because he had sold it prior to moving to Abilene. So what did he do all day while Jennifer was at work building her career and making new friends? Then, as I mentioned earlier, About three weeks after his arrival in Abilene, so sometime around August 10th, Jennifer found out some information about the Montana boyfriend that caused her to break up with him and ask him to get his own apartment. That information? The Montana boyfriend had been living with his fiance at the time that he met Jennifer, and he also had a child whom he had never told Jennifer about and whom he rarely saw by a different woman. I'm not quite sure of the timing at this point, but the Montana boyfriend had either broken up with that fiance upon meeting Jennifer or upon moving to Abilene with her. By all accounts, Jennifer didn't know about the Montana boyfriend's former fiance, his living situation in Montana or his child until they were living together in Abilene. Now we don't know how quickly, but the Montana boyfriend does move out and he gets an apartment very nearby, about 1.8 miles away to be exact. Why did he stay in Abilene when he didn't know anyone there other than Jennifer? I don't know. Reports are that he wasn't very close to his family, and he clearly seems to have burned some bridges in Montana. Maybe he just didn't have anything left to go back to. Jennifer, however, quickly moves on with her life, spending time with her new friends, both at work and during her time off. In the 2008 48 Hours Mystery episode with Harold Dow titled Deadline for Justice, The Abilene colleague says of Jennifer's breakup with the Montana boyfriend, quote, a whole new world was being opened up for her and a weight was lifted off her shoulders. She was just so exuberant about him being out of there, unquote. Now we know that about a week after their breakup, so somewhere around August 17th maybe, the Montana boyfriend asks Jennifer for a second chance. According to her family, Jennifer feels badly for him but she firmly says no to a reconciliation. So the Montana boyfriend has moved out, but he's just down the street. His new apartment is less than five minutes away by car. I've driven it, it's close by. But why did he move so close by? Maybe it was because he and Jennifer had reportedly agreed to remain friends. Maybe it was because Jennifer was the only person he knew in Abilene. Maybe it was because he was still secretly hoping to reconcile with Jennifer. Or maybe it was just the cheapest place he could find. Maybe he had landed his new job before he moved out of Jennifer's apartment, and he wanted to stay on that side of town because it put him closer to the manufacturing plant where the new job was. I don't know the order of these events yet, but somewhere in this several-week time frame, the Montana boyfriend gets a job, gets his own apartment, and buys a car. Maybe once we know when these events happened and the order in which they happened, some of this will start to fall into place a little better. Now, it seems that sometime in August, Jennifer started dating the Abilene colleague, so we can only guess that it would be in mid to late August, after she'd ended things with the Montana boyfriend and after he'd already moved out. According to the Abilene colleague himself, Jennifer soon realized, though, that she didn't want a serious relationship, and according to the Martz article, she told the Abilene colleague that she just wanted to be, quote, close friends, unquote. As I mentioned earlier, the Abilene colleague says he was all right with that. In early September, Jennifer and the Abilene colleague took a day trip by themselves to Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell was about a 10-hour round trip from Abilene, so the two spent an entire day together between the drive and any sightseeing that they did. According to Stowers, the Abilene colleague says that on the drive back home, he asked Jennifer if she had been having any problems with her ex-boyfriend, or as we call him, the Montana boyfriend. According to the Abilene colleague, Jennifer said no, but she added that she needed to get in touch with the Montana boyfriend soon and have him return the key to her apartment that he still had. We don't know if any contact was made or attempted by Jennifer around that time. For the record, according to the same source, the Montana boyfriend later claimed to police that he had returned Jennifer's key, quote, weeks earlier and hadn't spoken to her in some time, unquote. On Friday, September 13th, 2002, Jennifer's mom speaks to her by phone for the last time. Saturday, September 14th. It's been reported by Katie Vine that on that Saturday before she was murdered, a female co-worker asked Jennifer about the Montana boyfriend, and Jennifer said that she hadn't spoken to him in a while, adding that she needed to email him. Another report by Carlton Stowers is more specific and attributes Jennifer's need to email the Montana boyfriend to the fact that they had agreed to share the cost of a rented mailbox when they moved to Abilene and the Montana boyfriend hadn't picked up his mail in a while. Police have never said whether or not this email was ever sent by Jennifer. According to Jeff Martz, Jennifer's friend from Montana also said she had talked to Jennifer the day before she was murdered. And Jennifer told her that she hadn't seen or heard from the Montana boyfriend in three weeks. So had Jennifer simply been telling multiple friends about needing to get in touch with the Montana boyfriend, now her ex-boyfriend, because it was just one of those things that was on her mind that she needed to get taken care of? Or was she dreading it? And were her friends the ones bringing up the Montana boyfriend to Jennifer? Or was Jennifer bringing him up? That's another question we don't know the answer to yet. Sunday, September 15th. Sometime during the day, Jennifer's mom tries unsuccessfully to reach Jennifer by phone. Jennifer is working that day. She worked 10-hour shifts Thursdays through Sundays. That evening, Sunday, she worked the 10 o'clock PM news, and then she would have the next three days off work. After work, Jennifer ran some errands with the Abilene Colleague. As far as I can tell from the various iterations of this story, they were each driving their own cars that night. They picked up a few items, including that coffee table, a banana stand, and a paper towel holder from a friend. I still don't know this person's name. If you do, or if you are this person, please contact me and let me know. Jennifer and the Abilene Colleague then continued on to Walmart, where Jennifer picked up cat food for Mr. Binks, and the Abilene Colleague picked up some groceries. They're seen together on Walmart surveillance video at 10.46 p.m. It's been reported by multiple sources that either the Abilene colleague or Jennifer herself noticed a car possibly following them that last night that she was alive. In one version of the story, told by author Carlton Stowers in his 2014 book, the Abilene colleague is the one who sees a car following them. This report says that as they left the parking lot of Walmart, the Abilene colleague, quote, had a fleeting impression that a dark, four-door car was following them. He quickly dismissed his concern, however, and thought no more about it until he pulled into his apartment complex. As he stepped from his car to await Jennifer's arrival, he thought he saw the same car drive past, slow briefly, then speed away. Again, he chose to forget about it." In this version, we don't hear about Jennifer's reaction to the Abilene colleague thinking they may have been followed that night or even a definitive statement that he shared the information with Jennifer. However, Stowers does tell us that Jennifer had helped the Abilene colleague bring his groceries inside and that they had talked for a while and made plans to see a movie together the next evening. Stowers goes on to say that when Jennifer left the Abilene colleague's apartment after midnight, the Abilene colleague says that he insisted on walking Jennifer to her car, making light of it by saying, quote, if something happened to you between here and your car, "'nobody would ever forgive me,' unquote. And then he kissed her and watched as she drove away. A, quote, dark four-door car, unquote, is a pretty specific description for the story to have been misunderstood by a reporter. However, in another version of the story reported in the Martz article, Jennifer told the Abilene colleague that she had seen the same car twice that night, and it was reported in that version that the Abilene colleague brushed it off by saying that she was just imagining things. The same report goes on to say that later that night, when she was leaving his apartment, Jennifer declined when the Abilene colleague offered to walk her to her car, but he insisted. Why, if Jennifer was the one who thought they were being followed, would she not have wanted the Abilene colleague to walk her to her car? even if it was parked within inside of his apartment. According to the Martz article, a close friend of Jennifer's from Montana echoed this sentiment, saying, this didn't sound like her friend. However, Martz goes on to say, the Abilene Colleague, quote, says that's what happened and that her car was parked right at the bottom of the stairs to his apartment and that you could see her car from that vantage point, unquote. Now I've been to the Abilene Colleague's apartment complex, and you can't park at the bottom of the stairs to his apartment, but you can park at the end of the sidewalk that leads away from those stairs. This may just be a slight change in wording by a reporter or a bit of a semantics error, but if Jennifer parked at the end of the sidewalk rather than the stairs, the Abilene colleague could have watched her from just outside his second floor front door. Although, depending on exactly where she was parked, he may have had to lean over his railing to the right to be able to see her get into her car safely. The Abilene colleague could also have easily seen Jennifer walk to her car if he had walked to the bottom of his stairs and turned around 180 degrees. It's probably 20 or so feet from the bottom of his stairs to that first parking spot, if that's where Jennifer was parked that night. Something that's always bothered me, though, is why did Jennifer even go over to the Abilene colleague's apartment that night? I mean, I know the story is that Jennifer helped the Abilene colleague carry the groceries he bought at Walmart up to his second floor walk-up apartment, but how many bags of groceries could this single guy have had that night? And remember, Jennifer also lived in a second floor walk-up apartment. At the very least, she had a coffee table, a banana stand, a paper towel holder, some cat food, and maybe even her purse in her car that night. So why did Jennifer go to the Abilene colleague's apartment and help him take his things inside? Why didn't he go with her to her apartment and help her take that coffee table up the stairs in the dark? We know now that Jennifer only brought in the cat food, her cell phone, and her keys that night, and possibly her purse, which was missing along with her cell phone and her keys after her murder. But perhaps the most troubling aspect of this story is that according to the Martz article, the Abilene colleague didn't tell the police that either he or Jennifer discussed that they thought they were being followed on that last night of her life until several days after she had been found brutally murdered. Did it even happen given the fact that she never mentioned it to the college boyfriend she spoke to on the phone just hours later? Or was there another reason she might not have mentioned that she might have been followed only hours before? Keep in mind, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Jennifer's longtime friend who said that if Jennifer had thought she or they were being followed that night, that it didn't sound like the Jennifer she knew to turn down an offer to be walked to her car. In fact, upon hearing the story, this friend was quoted by Jeff Martz as saying, and to me, that was not the truth if it was the same Jen that we knew. So I've been to Jennifer's apartment complex too. Jennifer's apartment, as I said, was on the second floor, and the stairs and walkway leading to her front door were open to the wind, the weather, and the public. So picture it for a moment. Once she got home around 12.30 a.m., Jennifer still had to walk from her parking lot to the stairway, up the long flight of outdoor stairs, down the hall to her apartment, and unlock her apartment door, alone and in the dark. This is what made me start to wonder if she called the college boyfriend from her car rather than waiting until she was inside her apartment. Now as far as the timeline goes, I've seen articles that put Jennifer and the Abilene colleague leaving the news station as late as about 11.30 p.m. that night instead of closer to 10.30 p.m. Both timelines come together though at the point that Jennifer leaves the Abilene colleague's apartment sometime after midnight and both timelines place the phone call with the college boyfriend around 12.30 a.m. If the 11.30 p.m. timeline is correct, that would also mean that the Walmart video timestamp would have to be off by an hour, since it clearly says 22, 46, 53, 10, p.m. and 53 seconds, when Jennifer and the Abilene colleague enter the store, and I've never heard any mention of the timestamp on the video being off for any reason. If you have any information that can help clear up this discrepancy in the timeline, or you can verify when the late news aired on KRBC-9 in Abilene in September 2002, Be sure to contact me. So back to our timeline. It's Monday, September 16th, shortly after midnight. Jennifer drives away from the Abilene colleague's apartment for the last time, returns safely to her apartment, and has an hour-long telephone call with the college boyfriend. Now, there are conflicting reports about who called whom that night. According to the article by Jeff Martz, phone records indicate that the call was placed by Jennifer. I haven't seen those records, However, according to Katie Vine's article, the college boyfriend called Jennifer from Missoula at about 12.30 a.m. However, all the sources seemed to agree that this phone call lasted about an hour. They reportedly talked about their work, mostly. According to the book by Carlton Stowers, the college boyfriend said of the phone call, quote, Jennifer seemed happy, comfortable with her new surroundings, and perhaps a little homesick. If anything was worrying her, she made no mention of it, unquote. According to Jeff Martz, the college boyfriend also said that Jennifer never said anything about anyone following her home. According to Katie Vine's article, the college boyfriend added that Jennifer told him that everybody wanted her to go out with this guy, but she didn't want to be in a relationship, that Jennifer didn't say much about the Montana boyfriend that night, and that he, the college boyfriend, quote, never got the impression that Jennifer was scared of anybody, unquote. Let's think about that for a minute. Just hours, or maybe even minutes, before Jennifer's murder, the college boyfriend, quote, never got the impression that she was scared of anybody, unquote. Not scared of a stalker, not scared of the Montana boyfriend, and not scared of a car possibly following her earlier that night? If Jennifer and the Abilene colleague had thought they had been followed earlier, Or if the Abilene colleague had said something to Jennifer about seeing a, quote, dark four-door car, unquote, following them, why wouldn't Jennifer have mentioned it on the phone when it had happened just a few hours prior to that phone call? Not even just in passing? Like, hey, this weird thing happened tonight? And why did Jennifer try to refuse when the Abilene colleague wanted to walk her to her car that night if she thought someone had been following them earlier in the evening? so many questions and no way to know now exactly what Jennifer was thinking that night. And would any of these answers point to her killer anyway? So I don't think we know for sure yet if Jennifer was actually in her apartment when that call to the college boyfriend began. Maybe the police do. Maybe the college boyfriend has some insight. But Jennifer was talking on her cell phone so she could have been in her car or walking from the parking lot to her apartment when it began. Was she nervous that night about walking from the parking lot to her apartment in the dark? We just don't know. You'll remember from episode two that Jennifer was known by her family, her friends, and her colleagues to be a safety-conscious person. We know that one of the first things Jennifer did upon arriving in Abilene was to rent a mailbox that very first day, according to her mom, because she didn't want her mail coming to her apartment address. Jennifer didn't take unnecessary chances. She was proactive about protecting herself. At least one friend and coworker has said that she's sure Jennifer wouldn't have opened her door to a stranger. According to the article by Jeff Martz, the same coworker also said that Jennifer had shown her an article about newscasters who had been stalked just the week before her death. Jennifer was very aware of her own safety and she took it seriously. Even so, sometime after about 1:30 in the morning of Monday, September 16, 2002, someone attacked Jennifer in her apartment after she had made it home safely from the Abilene colleague's apartment. Someone brutally beat her with a blunt object and strangled her to death. Was this person already in her apartment when she arrived home, or did she let them in? Either way, it was almost certainly someone Jennifer knew and trusted. So why wasn't Jennifer found for nearly two days? How was Jennifer's body discovered, and by whom? What evidence do we have to work with? What are the main suspects' alibis? And where have they been over the last 15 years? Next time on Justice Delayed. In the meantime, brainstorm with me, help guide this investigation by sharing your thoughts and ideas, and listen along as I conduct my sometimes brave, definitely challenging, but mostly heartbreaking investigation into Jennifer's murder. This case is our call to action. So keep getting the word out about Jennifer's case, post about Jennifer, share the podcast promos in the first few episodes as they continue to come out. Invite your friends and family to join our discussion group on Facebook, post on Instagram or Twitter, and use the hashtag Jennifer Servo or hashtag Solve Jennifer Servo's Murder. Follow us on Twitter at JusticeDelayedP, that's JusticeDelayed, followed by the letter P as in podcast, and on Instagram at JusticeDelayedPod. Email me with questions and ideas about additional avenues of investigation at Sharon at JusticeDelayedPod.com. By spreading the word about Jennifer's case, you help increase the chances that we'll actually reach the people we need to reach, whoever they are and wherever they are. A lot can change in 15 years. Remember, if you know anything about Jennifer's case or if you just think you might, contact me. I will get back to you. It can be anonymous if it needs to be. If you were even a peripheral part of this case and you want your story told, contact me, even if you think it's insignificant. Every piece of information helps, especially now. If you know someone who was part of this case, let them know about the podcast and encourage them to contact me and tell their story. You can call my dedicated voicemail line at 210-836-8680, or you can contact me any of the other ways noted in this episode. If you have a tip about this case, contact the Abilene Police Department at 325-673-8331 or Crime Stoppers at 325-676-TIPS. You can also find those phone numbers on our website at justicedelayedpod.com. Or if you're uncomfortable contacting either one of those agencies, contact me and I'll help get your information to the right people. If you like this episode, and please be generous as we continue to find our footing go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. If you didn't like it so much, I strongly encourage you to wait just a little bit longer. Be sure to subscribe to our feed if you haven't already, so you'll get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. And write a review, too, but only if you like us a lot. If you post a five-star review, I'll give you a shout-out on next week's episode. Speaking of shout-outs, we have a few new five-star reviews. A very special thanks to CJHJLS. Your support and participation means so much to me. And thanks also to the Swag Queen and Sarah G 72 for your encouragement and kind words. I want to sincerely thank everyone who has taken the time to show their support for the podcast and for Jennifer and her family. Right now, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Libsyn, and there are links to our episodes at the bottom of my justicedelayedpod.com website. If you have a favorite place to listen to your podcasts, let me know, and I'll put it at the top of our list to add. New episodes drop on Thursdays. Join me as I actively search for justice in the form of a murderer. Remember to participate in the brainstorming, send me suggestions for leads to pursue, and ask questions about the case, all on our Facebook discussion group. Or just follow along as I try not to get into too much trouble in my pursuit of justice. So don't forget to join me next Thursday for more about the unsolved homicide of Jennifer Olson Servo. Justice Delayed is a New Manity LLC production. I want to say thank you to Jennifer's family for being so helpful and cooperative throughout this process. I couldn't and wouldn't have started this investigation or this podcast without their support. All music for this episode is provided by Lee Rosevere. You can find his music at happypuppyrecords.ca. Our logo was created by Caitlin Spencer. My editor, web designer, and all-around tech expert is none other than my husband, David Edwards. My sources for this episode are detailed in the show notes, as they were last week. Our success depends on your participation, so remember to send in any leads you think I should pursue or any questions you have about the case. This is Sharon, and I'll be back.